We're, we are glad to have you this morning with us. Um, on Sunday mornings, uh, if you haven't been with us before, we've been studying the book of Genesis together on Sunday mornings during the sermon time, and we've been looking at the major, some of the major characters and major stories in this book of beginnings. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph. So we're going to jump right in, and I'm going to read for us Genesis 37, verses 1 through 28 and verse 36. So if you want to follow along, you can turn there in your Bible, or if you're using one of the, uh, the Pew Bibles, uh, you can find this story on page 31 and 32. Um, but let's give our attention to God's Word now as I read it, and then we'll pray and ask for His help. Let's read God's word together. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, "'Hear this dream that I have dreamed.'" Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pastor their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing their flock, or the flock. And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. 
The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother uh, and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite... Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And then just to conclude it, verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever and ever. So let's go before him and ask for his help in understanding his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you and ask for your help, uh, that you would pour out your spirit, that we might understand your word, that you would apply it to our lives, um, that you would meet each of us where we are um, in your grace and in your mercy, you know those of us who come this morning, um, we might even be surprised to find ourselves in a church this morning. Um, you know others of us who come with their doubts and their skepticism and, and still others just heavily burdened in life, um, wondering where you are in the midst of life circumstances that seem so out of control and they're Others of us who come believing and excited to be among your people, and uh, there are those of us who come angry, there are those of us who come thankful. We come from all different places, but we pray that you would meet us all, and that you would reveal to us all that though the symptoms in our lives may be very different today, we really are all in the same position, and that is that we are all far more broken than we could ever imagine. And so together we need to hear the good news of the gospel that though we are far more broken than we could ever imagine, because of Jesus, we are also far more loved and secure and accepted and approved of than we could have ever dared dream possible. So Father, help us. Apply this good news to our lives and change us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The title I put in the bulletin this morning is Sin in the Hands of a Gracious God, which is, of course, a a play off of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, And hopefully the reason for my title will become clear to us as we go through this story. But this story... In Genesis tells us a good bit about sin. Um, and I, I know that for some of us, the word sin, um, the word sin itself feels, much less the concept, feels outdated and archaic. Um, but I want to make a case right from the beginning for the importance of that word um, in under, for our understanding of our world and our lives. Uh, David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, wrote this. He wrote, 
In centuries past, people built moral systems that acknowledged this weakness. These systems emphasized our sinfulness. They reminded people of the evil within themselves. Life was seen as an inner struggle against the selfish forces inside. These vocabularies made people aware of how their weaknesses manifested themselves, and these systems gave people categories with which to process the savagery and scripts to follow when they confronted it. You see, my concern is that today we are losing the vocabulary of sin and evil. And what's happened with that, as we've lost the vocabulary, we're losing categories that are necessary for understanding the world around us and ourselves. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher from the 19th century, once wrote, all originality and no plagiarism makes for very dull preaching. Um, And so I'm going to give you an illustration now that I stole from somebody else. Um, If you remember the old movie, The Silence of Lambs, uh, Silence of the Lambs with serial killer Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter, uh, that character was played by Anthony Hopkins, and the FBI agent that eventually caught him uh, was played by Jodie Foster, and uh, she was playing the character of Officer Starling. And in this one scene, Officer Starling was interviewing Hannibal, and she looked at him and said, what happened to you that you have become like this? And that right there is the assumption of our culture around us. She's saying, for you to do these horrible, atrocious kind of things, something must have happened to you to make you like this. Now, this is what Hannibal said to her in the book. It's not in the movie, but this is what he said to her in the book. He said, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism. Officer Starling, you've got everybody in dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say that I'm evil? He's saying your sophisticated modern worldview has no categories for me. You don't have a vocabulary sufficient to describe me. And yet, here I am. The language of sociology or psychology or biology, all of it can be helpful, but none of those vocabularies is sufficient to deal with life's truly broken reality. Maladaptive behavior, dysfunction, natural selection, that kind of language doesn't do justice to the world you see portrayed on the news, to the world you see around you day in and day out, a world filled with violence, hate, and bigotry, and radical self-centeredness, and abuse, and oppression, and corruption, and atrocities, and wars that we see at work in the world. And if we're honest... All of that stuff is also in our own hearts. We need a vocabulary and we need categories large enough to account for this reality. 
And the Bible gives it to us in this word called sin. Okay, and so that's what we're going to look at, uh, at, look at in this passage together. We're going to talk about sin. And there are three things that I want us to see in this passage. I want us to talk about sin's power, and then I want us to talk about sin's powerlessness, and then I want us to talk about sin's destruction. Sin's power, and then sin's powerlessness, and then sin's destruction. First, sin's power. What I want us to gain is an appreciation of the deep, internal, progressively destructive, enslaving power of sin. This past week, um, I went with one of our elders and one of our deacons to visit some missionaries in Nicaragua that we are pursuing a relationship with, and it was an exciting trip, and we'll, we'll tell you more about that trip in weeks to come. Um, but when we were there in Managua, Nicaragua, we were told by the missionaries that were there that there are seven or eight volcanoes around the city. And we, we were actually trying to make plans. We just didn't have enough time. We were going to try to get to one and look down and see the lava inside. Um, but volcanoes are fascinating to me um, because there are these things that hold within them that such destructive and violent power. And so as we drove around the city and I, you could see the, the landscape around the city, I, I, must asked, I must have asked at least a dozen times, is that a volcano over there? Is that a volcano over there? Is that a volcano? Um, and if you're looking for, for volcanoes, you kind of have to ask that question um, because a dormant volcano just looks like a mountain, Right? Um, on the surface, it seems just like any other mountain, uh, sturdy but, but harmless, just a part of the landscape. But of course it isn't, right? Because deep inside, lava is boiling, and given the right tectonic shift, what looks like a harmless mountain will unleash itself in destruction um, and death, The Bible says about humanity that we are all born with deep inside of our hearts this power of sin, and it's just waiting to erupt in destruction. And that power that's deep inside of us is sin. And, And this is why it's not enough to define sin as mainly or primarily a matter of keeping are not keeping certain rules. Sin's power is everywhere in this story, and it's bubbling just beneath the surface until it erupts in incredible violence. The scholar Kenneth Matthews writes that there is not one character in this story who exhibits noble character. Sin's power is on display in each character of this story. Jacob, or Israel, is the patriarch of this family. And verse 3 tells us that he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. The sin of favoritism, right? There's nothing, there's nothing really simple um, or innocent about favoritism. It brings about major destruction in this family. Joseph had been born to Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, and now Joseph, he was just keeping that dysfunction going. Now Joseph was his favorite son. 
Whether the robe given to Joseph was a robe of many colors, or if that word there means a richly ornamented robe, it really doesn't matter. Um, What isn't a matter of debate here is that Jacob was lavishing gifts and wealth and favor on this son at the expense of all his other sons. Sin was bubbling under the surface until it eventually erupted into a torrent of brokenness and sorrow and pain in this family. And Joseph's brothers, all this favoritism wasn't lost on them. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 8. In, in Hebrew, repetition is what you use to emphasize things. So three times in this passage, we're told that these brothers were growing in their hatred for Joseph. Why? Because, verse 11, they were jealous of Joseph. Sin was bubbling under the surface until it eventually erupted into an intent to murder their brother Joseph and to shut him up forever. But what about Joseph? Verse 2, Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers to his fathers. Interestingly, that word, bad report, is a word used for lying and deception in the Bible misrepresentation with the intent to deceive. But then Joseph had these dreams, dreams of sheaves of grain and the moon and the stars and the sun bowing down to him, and he, to- and he went and he told his brothers. Um, and I might be willing to give Joseph a pass for telling his brothers the first time he had a dream. But he goes back to them a second time, as if he is so completely lost in his self-absorbed, arrogant narcissism, that he's oblivious to the impact this has on his brothers. I mean, sin, radical self-absorbed pride bubbling beneath the surface, creating enormous rifts in this family. Sin isn't just a matter of breaking rules, it's a power within. Like David Brooks wrote, it's an evil within, selfish forces inside of us. Do you see how this story, in this story, how sin is bent on violent destruction of ripping people apart and families apart? Do you see how sin is progressively destructive and hardening? Look, it's progressively hardening in all of their lives. And probably the, the biggest case of it is seen in verse 24. You know, they took, well, actually verse 25, but verse 24, they took him and cast him into a pit, which are words in Hebrew that are used to describe dumping a body. But what's next in verse 25? They sat down to eat. I mean, that, that is icy, cold indifference, right, to their brother's cries from the bottom of this pit. Sin is progressively hardening. Vince Gilligan was the creator of the TV show Breaking Bad. Um, I am not recommending that you all watch this show, um, but I want to tell you at least why it was interesting to me and and what intrigued me about it. Before I ever watched the show, I saw an interview with Vince Gilligan on a late-night TV show, and he talked about how he was um, an agnostic atheist. Um, Okay, fine. Um, But then he said something that didn't seem to entirely mesh with that worldview, and it's what made me really interested in the show. Um, He said that his goal in making this show was, quote, 
to demonstrate that depravity inexorably leads to destruction. So here's a, you believe that there are no absolutes, that truth can't be known, but you're convinced that mankind is utterly depraved and it always leads to destruction. And the plot of the whole show is a character that does something terribly wrong, but for what he, but for what he thinks is for a greater good. And Vince, Vince Gilligan shows how depravity and sin erupts into total destruction of this character's life and everyone's life around him. Now think about this. As I was thinking about this passage, maybe Joseph's brothers even thought that they were serving a greater good by putting Joseph in this pit and getting rid of him. I mean, because from their vantage point, if Joseph really is this arrogant and this narcissistic and self-absorbed, maybe it's up to us to shut him up, shut him down before he rises to power. But yeah, the power of sin, depravity leads inexorably to destruction. I love what the preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said. He said, there is no more up-to-date book in the world than this old, old book that we call the Bible. It is concerned about all of us, just as we are and where we are. In addition to being history, it is an actual account of what every one of us does. This story isn't here to give you parenting advice. Don't parent like Jacob. This story isn't here to give you advice on how to be a better sibling in your family. It's not here to give you advice on how not to overshare in your arrogance. It's here to hold up a mirror to us. This is both an actual account of history and it's an actual account of what we're all like. It's here to say this power of sin lies deep within our hearts too. It's deep and it's, etern- it's internal and it's progressively destructive and hardening and enslaving in our lives. So the very first question I have is a very simple one. Can you admit to sin's power in your life? Deep within. Okay, second sense, powerlessness, which sounds very contradictory to the first point. Since power, now it's powerlessness. Um, But stay with me because this is where the title should start to make sense. That sin in the hands of a gracious God. So this volcano is erupting in Genesis chapter 37. All of the dark sin and evil that was thought to be dormant and harmless is erupting after all those years. And it's coming home to roost. And spewing out an utter violence. And here's another, here's another fascinating thing about Genesis chapter 37. It's the very same thing that has fascinated people for, for centuries and centuries about the book of Esther. Um, if you want to read that sometime. It, it's this. Nowhere in these 36 verses is God ever mentioned in this chapter. Not once. He is conspicuously absent for this volcano's eruption. And the artistry of the narrator in this chapter of Genesis and even in the book of, of Esther is the same, is that God isn't mentioned once in this chapter, but he is very clearly involved in every single minute detail of this story. Sin is this incredibly destructive power, but at the same time, it is absolutely powerless to frustrate any of God's plans. 
He even uses sin to advance his plans without ever being the cause of sin. Did you notice all the strange coincidences in Genesis chapter 37? Jacob happened to give Joseph a coat, and Joseph happened to have dreams that he told to his brothers, which all happened to inflame their jealousy and hatred of him. Jacob happened to send Joseph to his brothers. The brothers happened not to stay in Shechem, but to go to Dothan. Joseph was wandering around, lost at Shechem, and he just happened to run into a stranger who happened to hear where the brothers were going, right, to Dothan. And Reuben happened to show up at the very exact time that he needed to show up to save Joseph from being killed. But then Reuben just happened not to be there at just the right time when the caravan of Ishmaelites came by and just happened to pass by this place where they were, where Joseph could be sold. And the Midianites just happened to be going to Egypt of all places. And he just happened to be sold to Potiphar, right, an officer of Pharaoh. And later on, because of all these coincidences and more, Joseph just happened to rise to power in Egypt to provide for everyone, including his family, when a famine struck the land. Listen, if just one of these details that I mentioned did not happen, the whole people of God, Israel, and thousands upon thousands of people would die. And if that happened, then the promised Messiah would never come through Joseph's family line. So yeah, sin is a destructive power, but sin is also utterly powerless against God's purposes to rescue and save His people from their sin. I quoted from Martin Lloyd-Jones in the last point. Um, Years ago, I read through his sermons on the book of Philippians. I tried to find this quote in full, but I couldn't find it. But I have thought about it for years and years. Uh, At one point, he said, there is such a thing as divine alchemy. Um, you know, alchemy, back in the middle, of it, middle Ages, um, people thought that you could find a way to take this useless, worthless substance, lead, and turn it into gold. Um, hopefully I don't have to tell you that's not possible. Um, but that's what they called this process, alchemy, where you could turn lead into gold. Um, you cannot do that. You can't. But listen, this story is saying God can. He does turn lead into gold. He does it all the time. He uses the fire of trials in our lives to turn us from lead into gold. Sin is powerless to stop His purposes to rescue and save His people. Some of us in this room have been victims of of some horrible sins in our lives at the hands of others. And you know, when you're a victim, it's easy to look at your life and see all of that as useless and worthless, just lead holding you back. But listen, God all the time is taking lead and using it and and turning it into gold in His people's lives to transform them and make them beautiful. You know, there's also plenty of us in this room who have victimized others with our sin, and we've hurt others. We've hurt ourselves with our sin. We've made horrible choices. 
choices we're sometimes too ashamed even to admit, even to admit to ourselves. And it's so very easy to sink ourselves into shame, to question whether someone like me can ever change. But God is in the business of taking lead and turning it into gold. He does it all the time. It's what He loves to do. Truthfully, we're all a mixture. We've all been sinned against, and we've all sinned. The power of sin is inside of us too. And God, though He never causes sin, though sometimes He even seems to be absent from the story that's unfolding in our lives, He is always there, and He's always working to turn lead into gold. Please hear this. Your sin, great as it is, destructive as it is, deep as it is in your life, it is no match for the powerful grace of God in Jesus. Since powerless to frustrate any of His purposes or plans. You know, here's a bit of hope before we get to the last point. Um, If sin really is powerless, then neither the sins of others or even your own can ever stop God's purposes in your life. And that means there can never be a plan B for your life. It's always plan A. At times, you may not even be able to come close to detecting God's hand at work in your life. But He's always there. He has no plan B. It is all plan A, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And all things there means all things. Even the sin of others and even your own sin. It's all plan A with God. He never fails. Sin is powerless to Him. Finally, sin's destruction. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to be fairly brief in this last point, but I want to take one step in deeper um, with a principle that we see throughout the Bible. And here's the principle that we see in this passage and throughout the Bible. It's this. God is in the business of using sin to destroy sin. That's what I want to close with thinking about, how God uses sin to destroy sin. To my understanding, the great difference between uh, martial arts like karate and kung fu um, is over the use of force, right? So in karate, the aim is to meet force with force, to meet strength with strength, to meet power with power. But Kung Fu is very different from that. Um, Its aim is to use your opponent's force against himself, to redirect force, to to, uh, the force that's used by your opponent against your opponent. That may be an oversimplification. I don't really know anything about martial arts, um, but I've just heard stuff. I've watched a lot of martial arts movies, though. Um, But Kung Fu is what you see in Genesis chapter 37. The way in which God uses sin against itself in order to ultimately destroy sin. And it is the redemptive principle of the gospel message. So, if this morning is your first time to hear about Joseph, his father and brothers, you may need to read a little bit further into the story in Genesis. Uh, But I think most of you are familiar enough with this story so that you can think through this. Jacob after learning that his son, Joseph, was presumed dead, he was inconsolable. He was sunk into grief and sorrow and despair and doubt. But listen, 
Only if this happens, the way this happens, does Jacob ever learn again to trust and hope in the God who always keeps his promises, no matter what it looks like in life. Think about Joseph's brothers. The very problems created in their lives by their envy and hatred of Joseph are the very things used by God to soften their hard hearts later on in their lives. I mean, isn't that interesting? The very things you need in life to produce wisdom and humility and love come to you through the problems created by your lack of wisdom and humility and love. God is always using sin to destroy sin. And Joseph's story is the most familiar to to many of us, arrogant and self-absorbed, but then thrown in a pit, sold in a slave, and later on unjustly punished in his life. And in it all, God was using it all to save Joseph from his proud self-absorption. I mean, we'll see it later on next week when when he has a chance to confront those who threw him in the pit, intent on murdering him. He doesn't pay back, right? He's kind. He's softened. He's humble. God uses sin to destroy sin. But here, here I'm really just wanting you to get a good grasp of the principle. Because this idea that God uses sin to destroy sin, it is the redemptive principle in the Bible. And I want to I show you why it's important here. It's not just that God makes use of sin to reform and transform your character. He makes use of sin to ultimately destroy sin and to save us from the just deserts and penalty of our sin. All these things happen to Joseph, right? He's hated by his brothers. He's betrayed by those who are closest to him. He is stripped. He is beaten. He is sold for silver. And he is abandoned. But Joseph's story is ultimately pointing us forward to another someone, to someone else who came and destroyed sin by being delivered into the hands of sinful men, to someone else who came to his own and though the world was made through him, did not recognize him and did not receive him, to someone else who was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friend and went to his death completely and entirely alone, to someone else who was sold for silver by one of his inner circle. To someone else who was stripped and beaten. To someone else who who went even farther than Joseph. To someone who lost his life and died for his people so that they could be saved forever. Of course, that someone else is Jesus. The good news of the gospel is this. As I've heard someone else say, the good news of the gospel is that you are far more sinful than you know. Sin still lies deep in our hearts. It is a power bent on destruction. Depravity leads inexorably to destruction. But the good news is also this. You are also far more loved than you could ever dream possible. The God of heaven and earth is willing to allow His own Son to be the ultimate victim of sin, to save you from sin's penalty entirely. Throughout life, There will be times when you feel completely alone, when you feel abandoned, you feel like God is absent. You don't see His name anywhere. But I need you to remember this. 
If you believe upon Jesus, though you may feel alone, you are never alone. Jesus was ultimately abandoned and alone so that you could only feel alone, but never be alone in this life. And He is always at work in all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the good news of the gospel. We thank You that the good news of the gospel tells us about reality and tells us that we are far more broken than we know, than we can even imagine. So we also thank You that the good news of the gospel tells us that we are far more loved than we could have ever dreamed possible. Father, would you please remind us of this good news. Remind us of sin's power, but also remind us of its powerlessness to defeat your plan to rescue and save us in the person and work of Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen.